Would you join me in Psalm 89? Psalm 89. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of Matthew over the month of December. And uh, when I am preaching, uh, I'm going to focus just on some texts that connect us to the practice of Advent, uh, that connect us to the meaning, the significance of the birth of Jesus and, uh, and all that surrounded that. And uh, so we're going to be in Psalm 89 tonight. Reverend Story is preaching next week. So hopefully I timed that right. So baby will come this week and then we'll be ready to go. But we'll see. So Reverend Story will preach next week. David will preach next week. And then we'll go from there. Okay? Psalm 89. We're going to consider the psalm as a whole. But I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a long one. I'm going to start by reading the first 18 verses. And then I'll skip and read a few verses at the end. Psalm 89, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. And would you join me now in verse 46? And I'll read to the end of the chapter. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like a fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, 
with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we come to this song? It is a strange combination of joy and sorrow. And we need your help to understand it. And not only to understand it, but to embrace the message that you have for us in it. So that we can join the psalmist in singing to you. Would you guide us by your Holy Spirit? Enable us to connect this to our lives this week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. JJ, yesterday, my son, who was in first grade, decided that he wanted to write a Christmas story. And uh, he decided that it should be a story about our family. And he decided that it should be a story about our family as reindeers. And, uh, and so he started his story and he did the, the cover page for the story. He wrote the title and he drew four reindeers and we saw four. We said, JJ, there's one more reindeer coming. And so he, uh, he drew another little reindeer uh, for his coming little brother. And then he was done. <laughs> He, he brought it, he brought that to, to Jess and, and said, what do I do now? And she said, well, what's the problem in your story? Now, why did she ask him that question? Well, it's because we know that all good stories start with a problem, right? They start with a tension, with a crisis. And that's certainly true of the stories that we read and watch this time of year, these movies and books that always tend to reappear in the month of December. They are dramas that are centered around crisis and resolution. They, some ideal of Christmas is threatened, right? And Christmas itself has to be rescued. So, for instance... One of my favorites, I think an all-time cinematic classic of American cinema, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. (laughs) So you have Clark, who has this, these extraordinarily high ideals for Christmas. These great expectations for what it should be for his family. And, of course, they're all threatened, almost ruined. And Christmas has to be rescued. Well, it might surprise you to know that that pattern of those Christmas dramas is true of the biblical story of Christmas as well. It is true of the story of Jesus' birth. Jesus was born into a moment of crisis. And that crisis is expressed in verse 49 of our text tonight, in Psalm 89. The psalmist cries out, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? That question is the atmosphere of Jesus' birth. God's people had suffered oppression and slavery and disappointment and discouragement for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they were asking This question, Lord, where is your steadfast love? 
Where is your love, God? And that's an ancient question, but it's also a modern question. It's a question that we ask. We would not have to leave this room to find a situation that prompts us to ask the question, where is God's love in this? God, where is your love in this sorrow, in this loss? Certainly, as we look out these windows at our city, we could ask, where is the love of God? As we look around our world, we could ask, God, where is your love? I want us to take up that question tonight as we consider Psalm 89. And I want to consider an answer to the question in two parts. I want to talk first of all about our need for God's love. And then secondly, the means of God's love. Our need for God's love and the means for God's love. So first of all, our need for the love of God. Why does the question matter in the first place? Why should we even ask the question, God, where is your love? When you look at the first part of this song, this poem in in Psalm 89, uh, or it you notice that it seems to be a song about power. We hear all of these expressions of God being able to defeat enemies, of God creating and ruling over the world. The psalm says that He even rules over the raging sea. And for an ancient Israelite who would have sung this song, uh, the sea was the scariest place possible. The sea represented chaos and death, and evil. And so the psalmist sings, God rules even over that. He crushes Rahab, which is a creature connected to the sea. God crushes this creature. He rules even over chaos, and death, and evil. He is a transcendently powerful God. Scholars think this might reference the Exodus story. When God defeated the most powerful military of the day to rescue His people from slavery. And then they come to an even greater enemy. The sea, right? The Red Sea. And what does God do? He slays it. He divides it in half and leads His people on dry land to freedom so that they could worship Him and be His people. So this psalm paints a picture of limitless power. A power that exceeds all other so-called gods or spiritual beings. But that's not all this poem talks about. In fact, I would say that's not even the major theme of the poem. How does the song begin in verse 1? I will sing of what? God's power? No. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. When the psalmist talks about God's steadfast love, he uses the word hesed. Hesed is an old friend for us, those of you who studied the book of Ruth together uh, at the end of the summer in the month of August. It was a major word we saw in the book of Ruth. And hesed is the expression of God's commitment to His people, His covenant with His people, His deep, abiding, lasting care. For their good. 
And this psalm celebrates that care. It celebrates that love. It celebrates God's deep commitment to the good of His people. But think about this. Why the connection between power and love? Why does the psalmist put together these two very powerful attributes of our God, His power and His love? Well, I think the relationship between these themes works out this way. God's power is His ability to rescue His people, to defeat their enemies. It is His ability to bless them. God's love is what leads Him to use that ability on their behalf. Power is ability. Love is motivation. Love is desire to take His limitless power and exercise it for the good of His people. Exercise it to rescue them and to bless them. His love compels Him to save. Compels Him to redeem. And that's why the song is ultimately about the love of God. It's why that is the main theme and not His power. Because we can celebrate God's strength, but what motivates Him to use that strength, it is His love. This is why the question about God's love, where is your love, it's why that question matters. Because His love is a matter of life and death. You see the question in verse 49, you back up a few verses, you find out the psalmist is concerned that his life is being threatened. So the poet cries out for God's love because that is what leads God to rescue His people. The singer here understands our deepest human need, which is a need for the steadfast covenant Love of God. We don't like the word need, if we're honest. We don't like to be needy people. We want to suppress expressions of weakness, expressions of need. We have trouble expressing that. And our comfortable lives make it difficult for us to to share the desperation of this poem for the love of God, to understand how deeply... We need that love. And we certainly see that tendency expressed in in the modern practice of Christmas. A desire to be independent and sufficient, even with the way that we celebrate the holiday. I read an article recently uh, written by a woman named Laura Miller. And the article was an argument for the celebration of Christmas apart from its religious roots. Ms. Miller was saying that we, uh, as a society, should celebrate this holiday even if we don't believe the Christmas story, even if we don't share the Christian message and the Christian faith. And she ends the article saying, our, our celebration of Christmas is all about family. It's about warmth. It's about celebration and joy. And so, yes, the Christmas story is a fantasy, but she says sometimes a fantasy is exactly what we need. Now, before we get all belligerent and pull out our Jesus is the reason for the season sweaters, (laughs) 
Let's think about what she says. Consider a few things. First of all, the desire for family, the desire for warmth, the desire for joy are very human desires. We're made with those desires. And so she is touching on something that is very human. The problem is that it doesn't go deep enough. She doesn't go far enough into what we need as human beings. She doesn't grasp our ultimate need. And so her statement about the practice of Christmas ultimately is just sentimentality. And that's the tragedy of it. Because it cannot speak to the pain of our world. It cannot address the brokenness of our lives. I read this week some articles about things happening in Congo in Central Africa, which you never hear in the news, uh, but a war there that has been going on for a long, long time. Millions of people murdered. A war where rape is a military tactic. A sentimental view of Christmas cannot speak to that. It cannot speak to the tragedy of our world, but... The truth of Scripture can and does. The truth of Scripture speaks when sentimental message of fantasy fails. The message of the gospel is not one of escape. It is one of engagement. The Christian message recognizes that, yes, we do live in a tragic world ruined by sin. And that tragedy is an expression of of our deepest need, our need for the love of God. Let me ask you, as you consider the next month and what you will do in the next month, don't escape your need for the love of God. It's so easy with all of the resources around us to mute that hunger to try to fill that ache and meet that ache with with other things, uh, with with possessions, with, with relationships, with pleasure, with success, on and on and on. We have found a multitude of ways to try to ignore our need for God. Let me encourage you over this month that instead of ignoring it, that you would move towards it. That you would not fear feeling the depth of your need for God's love. It's why we are observing Advent. Because Advent is a time of need. It's a time of expectation. It acknowledges that, yes, Jesus has come. Light has entered to darkness. But Jesus is not done yet. Darkness is still a part of our lives. It's still a part of our world. And so we long for the return of our Savior. Now, the problem is that recognizing our need for God's love still does not answer our central question. Remember verse 49, what's our question? Where is the steadfast love of God? And recognizing our need for God's love only intensifies that question. It doesn't answer it. So we need to take a second step. And we need to talk not only about our need for God's love, but we need to talk about the means of God's love. 
How do we access? How do we come into contact with the love of God? There's some interesting parallels between the first and second part of this psalm. The first and second halves of the psalm. We didn't read some of the verses, but uh, the first half, as we read and saw, is all about God's power and, and all about God's love and all of these things that He has done in the past. And then I want you to read a few verses with me that we didn't read. If you'll look... Beginning in verse 19. And what I want you to do is I want you to hear the echoes of what we've already heard about God's power, about His love, about Him raising the horn of His people, which He says in verse 17. Listen now, beginning in verse 19. I'll just read a few verses for us. It says, Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help. To one who is mighty, I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my or with my holy oil. I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. You hear the echoes? You see the connections? What God says about his people His power, His love, their horn be exalted. Who does He say it about now? About David. The the ultimate king of Israel. And I think what these parallels show us is that God's love is not some vague emotion, some vague feeling for His people. God's love takes concrete form in His relationship with the kings of Israel. His relationship with David and his sons. These kings were supposed to be the expression of, of Hesed, of God's commitment, his covenant with his people. And he said to them, I'm going to establish with you an everlasting throne. And that throne will bring redemption, restoration, and healing to God's people and to the world. David and his sons were the connection between God's love and God's people, they were mediators. They were the means, or they were supposed to be, the means by which God loved His people, rescued them, protected them, provided for them. And I corrected myself and said, supposed to be, because if you know a little bit about the Old Testament story, you know that David and his sons were a colossal failure. They did not live up to their billing. They did not succeed in leading the people in God's faithfulness and being an expression of God's love and commitment to His people. And because of their sin, their idolatry, God sends enemies to Israel and those enemies defeat them. They come under oppression. They are scattered throughout the world. And they ask the question, God, where is your love? Because when David's throne failed to be what it was supposed to be, it seemed like God had given up on his commitment. It seemed like the world had lost access to the love of God. And so the poet 
here in Psalm 89 wept and asked, God, where is your love? David and his sons have failed. They've been defeated. God, do you love us anymore? And this sad song is the reason that the New Testament begins with a list of names. You remember Matthew chapter 1? You remember that list of names? Do you remember how that list of names begins? This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David. This is... And if you pay attention throughout the New Testament, you'll see that the New Testament is constantly connecting Jesus to David, constantly reminding us that he is a son of David. Why? Because the New Testament addresses the grief of Psalm 89. In Jesus, we see that God has not deserted his promise to save. The world is not given over to the wrath of God. There is indeed access to God's love. And it is in Jesus, the Son of David. He is the means of the love of God to our lives and our world. So, where is the steadfast love of God? It's at the manger where God Himself takes on skin and bone. It is in the life of that baby born in a manger where we see Jesus moving towards those who are broken and sick and oppressed to bring healing and freedom. Where is God's love? It's at the cross. Where Jesus takes on God's wrath and where he takes on the words of David from another psalm and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, at the cross, it seems like once again, that question was winning out. God, where is your love? But God doesn't leave the question unanswered, does he? Where is the love of God? It's at the empty tomb where God answered the prayer of Jesus. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Here is my love. He raised him from the dead. God's love outlasted and conquered the ultimate enemy, which is death. This message the gospel of Jesus is so important because it teaches us a very important lesson. And that lesson is that God is not Santa Claus. Remember last week we talked about Santa Claus and his list. God is not Santa Claus. You think about the practice of Santa Claus and it seems on the surface warm and friendly, but underneath it's quite sinister. Here's this elderly man and he's showing up to town and he has a list. And on that list is your name, all right? And he has labeled you with one of two labels. You are naughty or you are nice. And I remember thinking as a kid, well, I'm not really sure how to get in the right column. 
I mean, how nice is nice enough? How good is good enough to get me the label of nice? And your whole Christmas morning rests on that label, right? And I remember thinking, well, what, what, if I, what if I screw up the Christmas Eve, right? The night before Christmas, I punch my sister. You know, do I get transferred from one side of the list to the other? It's scary, isn't it? But God is not Santa Claus. He is not coming to town with a list of the labels naughty and nice. No, God showed up to town in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And if we are looking for the love of God, if we are desiring the love of God, the gift of His love does not depend on our ability to move from one side of the list to the other. The gift of God's love rests on Christ. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, His continued work in praying for us and giving us the Holy Spirit. Where is God's love? That is where God's love is. So this month, where will you look for love? Will you look for love in family? Family is a great gift of God. And we do experience a beautiful expression of human love. But that is not your deepest need. Your family will not be able to give you the gift that you deeply need. You will only find it in Jesus. Will you look to possessions, the endless gadgets that we can find? Will you find love in believing and following Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, I sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. That despite our rebellion, our even hatred of You, You have pursued us in love through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we do still deal with deep sorrow and longing and pain. And I pray that You would teach us to turn to Jesus with that. Not that He'll take it all away now, but because He is the ultimate expression of Your steadfast love. He is where we find our deepest need met. Would You help us throughout this month? Especially, there are so many ways. There are so many other gods that we can turn to. And so will you lead us through your Son to your throne so that we can find their grace and peace and life and true and eternal joy. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.